I'd like to talk this morning on what's wrong with our society. And it's probably for many of us, we'd say, what, was this going to be another election um, promotion? Haven't we had enough of this, of people telling us in the last um, months as they've stood either for local council or even in the state elections, or what's wrong with our society? In one sense, it's right that people actually stand up to tell you what they're going to do if they're elected because they're going to be doing something with our money. And I think it's right that they tell us what's going to be happening. So I've got no problem with the uh, the politicians or the would-be politicians standing up and telling us what they're going to be doing. But uh, with all that they're going to be spending, even here in Toowoomba with the council elections and with the, the change of government that's happened here in Queensland, uh, there's going to be some changes around the place. One of those promises is what's happening down the road here at Highfields, a new state high school's coming in. And uh, what were they saying? Something like $80 million is being spent in this local area as part of an uh, election promise. The other one was this $45 million bypass that's coming in to uh, try and help us move around Toowoomba. Well, that's wonderful. But what does it fix? Does it actually fix what's wrong with society? And today what I'd like to do is do some sharing with you about what I think the scripture tells us what's wrong with society. Because politicians will tell us what's wrong. We'll most probably over a, a cup of tea or something else like that occasionally get in discussions with what we think's what's wrong with society. We'll also have a sort of a, almost a nightly barrage if you're into watching the news or watching one of the current affair programs or you're reading the paper. You're going to be bombarded with uh, what they think is wrong with society. And then they're also going to be putting forward a little bit of maybe a solution. So politicians have got this issue of how to solve what's wrong in society. Uh, we're all, in a sense, troubled because we know that the way things are is not the way that they actually would be the way we'd like them to be. We'd all would like to be able to walk around Toowoomba at night and feel the place is safe. Some of us might remember the day when you drive into town, you wouldn't have to worry about locking your car or locking the front door or the back door. There weren't security companies like there are now. There weren't these little PIRs wherever they are in this building so that we arm this place at night or you arm your place, these sorts of things. And there's sort of a longing in our heart to be, wouldn't it be wonderful to be in a society where those sorts of things didn't have to be there. Uh, you might have um, heard this this week that there's uh, someone was driving along the highway down in um, Melbourne, driving along, and suddenly there's this money that just sort of blew up from everywhere. And a couple of cars pulled over and they uh, started to say, this is fantastic, money, money, money. I think it was $22,000 someone somehow had either lost out of a car or lost out of something else. And the fortunate people, fortunate, the people that just happened to be going down the road at that time were able to pull over the side of the road money. So they started to grab $50 notes, $100 notes, and just where they were, there was all this money. Uh, the police put out a call to people saying, look, if you happen to be passing that particular incident and you picked up the money... You need to hand it in. Because actually what you're doing is called theft. Did that money belong to you? No. It belonged to someone else. And so this story just happened to, to occur this week. And we all face these issues from time to time. What happens when I just happen to be in the right spot at the right time? 
and I've got $22,000 floating in. I can't find out who the person is. This is a main highway. I can pull over. I can pick up the money, get them back in my car, race away, and no one will ever know. Interesting, isn't it? So the news uh, broadcast was about this money that was found. What's wrong with our society? Is there a problem? The, uh, the Wayne Swan, with the attempt to bring his budget into surplus, has spent millions and billions of dollars across our country. Has that fixed a problem? What's he addressing? So today what I'd like to do is to go on a bit of a journey with you to try to understand what is the problem. And then what is society actually saying is the problem as we look at the media? Well, the media didn't make too much of a story other than there was some sort of intrigue that there was $22,000 found on the side of the road. But it actually put another story out this week and it was fascinating to see the way that the news put it together. Now, the news can actually tell us anything that they'd like to tell us. They decide what comes on our TV sets and they decide what doesn't come on our TV sets. And then we've got to evaluate what we see. And I hope we are not that gullible that everything that we see on the TV must be the full story. These guys are on a tight time frame. They've got to get the news out. They've got to find something interesting for you. They've got to find some of the facts and hopefully don't get sued by what they put out there because they want to need to be close to the truth. In Luke 8, 18, uh, Jesus said, uh, be careful to how you hear. In Mark 4, 24, it says, be careful about what you hear. When things are coming our way, it's not just for us to take everything lock, uh, block, stock and barrel to say that, oh, well, that's what is uh, on the news, must be right. But anyway, on the news this uh, last week, you might have seen it about uh, some bus, a bus company down on the Gold Coast that was uh, contemplating refusing picking up kids and dropping them at this particular school because some of the kids on the bus had been... Um, well, well, poorly behaved and the bus company was uh, concerned about their bus driver and all the issues and so they were going to say we weren't going to pick up the kids. Did you see that story? Well, one of the interesting stories that uh, started to come as a result of that, I saw one of the interviews being conducted on the TV and the uh, interviewer was talking to a, uh, a lady. Now, again, you don't know how these things are edited. You don't know exactly what question was asked. But the information that was presented to us was the fact that the lady who was seemed to be a mother associated with the school or just a mother somewhere in the vicinity was actually saying, I think the bus driver might need some help to learn how to handle young people. So where was the problem? The problem wasn't with the naughty kid on the bus doing things and beating up other kids. We were being told that something we should be now considering is the problem isn't with the student it's actually maybe with the bus driver because if he needed some more, he might need some more help to know how to handle it. Well, obviously he needs some more help to handle it, but where is the problem? And our society is constantly telling us day after day, and we don't necessarily realise it, that they're trying to find someone else to blame for the problem than the person who's actually done the issue which is basically saying the problem's not with the person, the problem is somewhere outside. Now, is this a common, uh, a modern phenomenon? Well, it isn't the way that we are presented with it. And I see it here within the school community. As I have, have over the last 20 years as principal of the school, been dealing with issues, I can see a shift. 
And let me use this as a bit of an example before I come back to my own examples. For those of us who are more my age, as, a, as an adult in the room, if you got into trouble at school and you went home and told your mother or your father, what was likely to happen? Well, I'll tell you what was likely to happen. If I went home and told my dad or my mother that I got in trouble at school, there was no way that they were going to argue with the school. They were going to turn around and say, Richard, you deserve that. In fact, now you're in trouble with us for being in trouble at school. Do you know what happens now when something goes home from the school that says that Johnny's in trouble? There's almost like an interrogation, not of the child, but wait a minute, did the school do everything right? Are you sure that you were... Let's just double-check to see that the teacher did everything they should have. Now, did you have your lunch? Did someone unkind to you? Was there some other stimulus inside of, outside of you that actually caused you to behave the way that you did? And the last place people look is actually at the person's heart. There's been a shift. I remember talking at last year's uh, information night that uh, I was dealing with an issue not not long before that particular information night for parents that are going from year seven into year well students of going from year seven to year eight. There was an incident in one of our classrooms, and I'll try to be as vague as I can so it doesn't reveal anything, but I had a, a family in the school whose son uh, burst out of the classroom, went running away, was all upset. The parent, when we had a discussion with them, said to us, uh, maybe, Richard, you just need to check that the seat's okay because maybe he was upset because of the seat that he was on. Okay, I'm very happy to check the seat out. But I can tell you about... 999 times out of a 1,000, it's not going to be the seat. And so we start looking for all these various issues of who to blame. And we've been almost conditioned by that if the only way that we learn to look at things is by the media. Because the media doesn't see us made in the image of God. The media doesn't see the issue as the fallenness of our heart. This book does. The media that we should be following and countering everything else that we're learning and everything else we're hearing will tell us how we should be viewing things. Let me take you to an interesting passage here. I want to show you that blaming others is not a, form, a, no, a modern phenomena. In uh, Matthew 15... Jumping into a discourse of Christ, and I'll go back to explain it all, but let me just jump into Matthew 15, verse 19. Christ says this, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness and slander. Pretty clear. Let me say it again. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, Adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. See, some people want to suggest that what should actually happen on the buses, we should now put some more police on the buses because that will solve the problem. Then they're saying, wait a minute, now what we really need to do is not only put more police on the buses, we need to actually have police in the school because that will start to help some of the problems. Well, one of the uh, major problems in uh, Australia 
is actually what goes on in the shopping centres, what goes on in business, the amount of shoplifting that happens in our country. There's a something called the AIC, the Australian Institute for Criminology. Now, it sounds like it's something that, what do you do? You go there to learn how to be a criminal? I'm not sure. But anyway, the Australian Institute for Criminology, it's actually a government body whose job is to do research into why is there crime in Australia and what we're doing about it. You can go and have a look at their website. I downloaded their um, their yearly report, 139 pages. It actually starts outlining some of the crime that there is in Australia. And I'm all for the police. that They play a very important role. But here's the challenge. If we think the solution is going to put, to put a policeman in every shop, on every bus, in every school classroom, then I think we're missing the point. We don't need a policeman in every corner. We just need a policeman in every heart. That's the message that the media should be putting out. It's not just, hey, try to put all these externals around because that will solve the problem. The problem is actually in here. Now, I'm talking to a very nice audience, I'm sure. But when you do your own heart check, what do you see? What is your heart actually capable of? Well, I'll tell you what your heart's capable of. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. If you want to read Galatians in chapter 5, the works of the flesh are these sorts of things and more. And then to summarise the whole thing, um, Paul says, and things like that. So the list just goes on and on and on. Now, I'm not trying to be nasty to you. I'm just trying to help you open your eyes to see what can actually happen in someone's heart if they're not going to be surrendered to Christ. Let me go back and I want to read now the whole context now of Christ in this discussion that happens in Matthew 15. Uh, And he called the people to hear him and said to them, Hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. It's not what goes in, it's not the external, but it's what comes out, it's from the internal. This defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted out. Uh, Let them alone, they are blind guides, and if a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. But Peter, good old Peter, said to him, Explain the parable to us. Give us more, I don't fully understand it. And he said to them, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and so passes on? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts. I've read that bit already. These are what defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. So way back in Jesus' day, there's this big discussion that we have in our own context today, of where does the problem originate? 
in the environment, the pressure from outside, someone being nasty to me, someone being unkind to me, that's where it all starts. Well, all those things affect. None of us like to eat food that's gone off. It's not a nice, easy process when things are corrupt in themselves. So there is a place for those things to be put right. We do want to live in a just and a and a compassionate and understanding society. But what is Christ actually getting at here? He's saying that the problem, folks, is actually in you. Now, many of us have come to a realisation that there is no redemption, there is no salvation, there is no way forward in ourselves. And so we've done something about that by coming to the cross and realising that I've got this problem of sin, I surrender it to Christ and I'm forgiven. So that's wonderful. And that's the process of, of redemption. But I want to put to you today that that's not the end of the matter. Because if that was the end of the matter, then there's a lot of scripture here that most probably is irrelevant to us. But in terms of helping us understand about the the heart that we have, if you look at Ezekiel 36.26, it talks about how that God wants to take out from us a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. So what happens, it goes from being a rock hard and uh, impenetrable to being soft and malleable. That's what the story is about. But if you have a look at the Old Testament that I'd like to go to now, I'd like to try and help you see how um, God looks at this. And I'd like to go over to Jeremiah 17. If you know your Bible well, you know what I'm going to be saying out of Jeremiah 17. Again, it's not complimentary. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the mind and test or try the heart to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So here's the problem. Where is the sin? It's within. Are we, are we deal with that in terms of Christ? Yes, we do in terms of asking forgiveness. But now we've still got a heart. We've got a heart day by day that we need to be making the right decisions. And it's actually still warped to a large degree over the decisions that our heart will make. It's deceitful. It's going to be saying to us that right is actually, well, wrong is actually right. It's going to try to delude us. It's going to try to deceive us because that's what it is. And so what I'd like to do is to go back a little bit more and talk about uh, a great example of this. And that's out of... Um, 1 Kings chapter 11. We're going to be listening to what actually happened to King Solomon. King Solomon. So those who know the story, uh, Solomon is uh, the third king of Israel. There's been Saul, then there's been David, and then David's son Solomon has taken on the, the, uh, the kingship. He's had a magnificent reign. He's been doing a marvellous job of building some uh, the whole temple structures, which was called Solomon's Temple. He had this job. But something was still needing to be addressed in his heart that actually never got around to being addressed correctly. 
You can read about it in 1 Kings chapter uh, chapter 11. Let me just jump in here to show you. Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So David, uh, we'll come to David in a moment. Solomon had started this journey, had done these magnificent things for God. Yes, he was in right relationship with God in that sense. But slowly and then sadly and unfortunately he started to deviate. And his heart no longer wholly followed the Lord. What a tragic end to a great man's life to find himself now being told, you're going to be rejected, Solomon. After you, I'm going to take the kingdom from your sons and rip it apart because of the inheritance that Solomon was leaving as a result of not following his own advice. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, Proverbs written by Solomon himself, he says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for out of it flows the issues of life. The core element for each one of us, if you read Proverbs 4.23, is that we are guarding, preserving, watching over what's inside of us, our heart, so that we don't find ourselves just wandering off track. This is where the problem is, folks. And yes, we have got ourselves a fresh heart. Yes, we have got eternal hope. And all that is marvellous. And I'm hoping that you are the same like me. I don't want to end up like King Solomon. I don't want to start well and finish badly. What's going to be the safeguard that actually keeps me hopefully ending well like I believe I'm going well at the moment? Not in a prideful way, but I think God's got me on track. How do I stay on the track? That's what we want to talk about today. And one of the reasons I need to do that is because I know what my heart would do if I leave it alone. In Matthew chapter 13, and in other places in the Gospels, Jesus gives this great story about the parable of the sower. I think if you've been in Bible school, Sunday school, you'd know it well. The uh, sower goes out to sow and he throws it and it goes on to four different types of soil. But what are those soils? If you read carefully the scripture, those soils are actually four different hearts. A hard heart. A heart that starts but doesn't finish. A heart that has weeds that grows up in it. And hearts that become good. And what's that story all about? Well, the story about is if you've got rocks in your heart, if you've got hardness in your heart, do something about it. If you've got weeds growing, do something about it. And this is actually to people that love God. It's not about people who are pre-salvation. It's for those that are walking with Christ. The word's still coming to us. That's what we need to grapple with. Now in um, 1 Samuel chapter 13, we read this wonderful passage. I'm going back to 
Solomon's dad. And his name is David. David fits in a, to a particular category that's not mentioned at all often in scripture. As you might remember, the story goes with something like this. Samuel was this amazing gift from God to the people of Israel. Miracle child. And he was bringing in almost a prophetic realm. The judges had happened, following on from Joshua, and the judges had gone up and down, up and down. Now God was changing it and he was wanting to bring in a prophetic realm. And Samuel brought in this amazing ability to hear God speak God's word and the people were receiving it. But in the midst of receiving all that, what are they asking for? They're asking for a king. I think down the track God wanted them to get the king because he wanted them to have David. But no, they weren't waiting for that. They said, no, we want a king right now. We don't want the king that you want. And God knows that... uh, as had went on to say that they were rejecting him. You can read all about it in the early parts of Samuel. And so Saul becomes the king, the first king. He's not going to last long because he's not the right man. He's got a lot of attributes that make him look like he's going to be the man. He's head and shoulders above everyone else. He's handsome. He gets a few victories happening. People think this is going to work. But in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 14, We hear this. After Samuel made his first big blunder as uh, disobeying God and not trusting God like he should have, uh, Samuel had told to Saul, wait seven days and I'll come with you and we'll sacrifice. The people started to panic. Saul started to panic. Saul goes ahead and offers the sacrifice. Just when he finishes the sacrifice, guess who turns up? Samuel. Amazing appointment. God knew what the right time was. And Samuel, instead of being uh, sad about it, uh, tries to make a number of excuses. And uh, in verse 14 it says, uh, well, let me just go back a verse. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly if you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him to be prince over his people. So what we're going to be following now is the demise of Saul and the rise of David. And David's going to be for us a wonderful example of what it is for someone who's got a heart after God. I'll tell you why the Psalms are here. For us to engage with someone who's in that unique category of being someone who's got a heart after God. And for most of David's life, he's actually staying on the straight and narrow. And that's why we've got it here, folks. David's in that unique category. And just to make sure that we got the message, when Samuel, the man of God, comes to find the the new king, when he's told to go down to the house of Jesse, even Samuel can't discern the person that's got the heart after God. And that wonderful statement, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, where it says, uh, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And we've got this reminders all the time. It's after the heart, folks. It's the heart, folks. And I can't judge your heart. That's not my role. It's the Lord to speak to us. My role is to encourage you to have a heart that's open. 
that's doing what the scripture says that followed on back in Jeremiah 17 about our heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. But the Lord wants to test your heart. He wants to change your heart if you let him do it. And David goes on this great journey through all the trials and tribulations, allowing God to change his heart, not just his circumstances. If anyone had any right to say to God, I have been totally unfairly treated, it would have been David. He hasn't lifted a finger against Saul, but Saul's tried to kill him at least seven different times. Throwing spears at him, sending our people to uh, arrest him, kill him, a whole range of things. But God is taking David on a journey to make sure that through the circumstances in life, his heart would be right towards God. And as you know the story, David gets this amazing opportunity as he's hiding in a cave, having been hunted down by Saul. He's hiding in a cave, not sure whether this is going to be his last day or not. And who should come into the cave to go to the toilet? But Saul. So David's with all his men and whatever weaponry they've got. Saul comes in on his own, gets himself in a position where he can't be doing much, but anyway, just looking after himself. And the guy's saying, strike! Here it is! God's given it to you. Here's your moment to be delivered. But what did David say? Well, first of all, he went over and he snuck and he just cut off a bit of the robe that had been thrown on the ground off, off uh, Saul. And as soon as he did it, his heart smote him. I'm going somewhere where I shouldn't go, is what David found. And so David, uh, having been taking the opportunity, shall I stab him? No, I'll just cut off a bit of his garment. And he feels God. I'm doing something wrong. He's got that softness towards God. That's what we should be having, folks. Not saying, well, Adam, and look at all the injustices that are done to me. As soon as I've got a chance, man, I'm going to pay out on someone. That's not what happened. That's 1 Samuel 24. Then you go to 1 Samuel 25 and this amazing story of Nabal, and you can have a read of it, of where David was about to take vengeance on someone, this time not the Lord's anointed, but someone that had done a bad deal on him. He thought he owed him something, and the guy said, no, no way, I'm not paying, a, not paying anything. And David said, well, don't you worry about that, I'll come and get you. And he gets there and he's about to take vengeance out on Nabal, and God intervenes and says, listen, if you're going to be a man after my own heart, that's not the way I want you to behave. And he learns a very powerful lesson through Nabal's wife, Abigail, who actually ends up becoming David's uh, another one of David's wives, which is another issue, but um, a cultural issue, not, not a biblical issue, I believe, in terms of the way David handled that. But uh, And then you get back into chapter 26, and what happens this time? David goes out again being chased by Saul, having Saul said he wasn't going to chase him. And this time, the whole army, the 3,000 men that are with Saul, God puts them all to sleep. Here's another setup. And David's with some men and they sneak right down into the camp and they get right to the place where Saul is sleeping. And at, da- at Saul's head is this, his own spear and a jug. Jug of water, spear. The two guys that have come down with David are saying, this is fantastic. 
What a marvelous moment. Look there, everyone's asleep. You could pick that up, finish him off. In fact, if you don't do it, I'll do it for you. The test that God was putting David's heart through, in a sense, is going to be the same sort of thing that God wants to do with you. He wants to put your heart through tests. He wants you to make you, as Peter was talking about before, sanctified, more like Christ. Now, I think in many of our analogies and stories of life, it'd be fascinating to say, now, wait a minute, that was David down there, but what would Jesus have done if he'd walked in, saw Saul on the ground, and Saul had done all these nasty things to Christ? I don't think many of us would actually think Christ would pick up the steer and go, whoosh. Somehow we have this other view of Christ. The Christ was the one that was, was giving, that was laying down his life for others, that would be serving. Anyway, amazing when we start putting Jesus into some of our stories to see what he would do. What would Jesus do? So there we have it. David on this particular journey, having been given opportunities to act in a sense out of his own heart, but finding that instead of doing that, he wanted to operate the way that God would have him, which is in lining now, so that he could actually be called as a man after God's own heart. So what I'd like to do in, in just wrapping this up, even though when I introduce this, you're going to say, this is a wrap-up? I've got seven keys for having a heart like David. So let me quickly, it'll be on the tape, you can get it. What do I think are the steps that David took in his life that actually kept him for most of his life on the straight and narrow? And even when he did deviate and killed a man, Uriah, took his wife, Bathsheba, how did he get back on the track so his heart was after God? And I think these are the elements that we need to have in our heart and life so that as God puts us through our tests, and if you're not sure that God gives tests, have a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4 where he says that the Lord tries our hearts. Again, being written to Christians. God's going to be putting you through tests, folks. Do you know when they're coming? No. Is the timetable out yet for exams? Well, they might be for school, but they're not in God's economy. I don't know where they're coming today. I don't know where they're coming tomorrow. I don't know where they're coming in a week. I don't know what they're going to look like, but I know they're coming. Tests are coming, folks. And when we realise the purpose of those, that this is the way that God wants to fix society, is by people owning what they've done wrong, to know that it comes out of here and bringing their heart before Christ and asking him to work on it. So here's the seven things. Well, I think you can't deny that in David's life it was built around worship. David knew where he fitted into the whole scheme of things. He knew what his focus was. He knew how to acknowledge. He had everything in the right perspective. The world wasn't about David. The world was about God. He had those things in right balance. We live in a world where we are so driven that if, look, if you're out of, uh, if anything's upset you, you've got every right to do everything about it. No, look, it's not about you. It's about you worshipping in the midst of your trial and in the midst of your difficulty. 
Embrace the trials that the Lord sends your way and in the midst of those, be a worshipper. Uh, the second uh, aspect of David's life was that he had a trust in God. You know, when is trust actually trust? When you're in difficulty. That's when you know about it. When you're in the pressure, when you're facing opposition. Think of the two instances that David faced in relation to handling pressure and how he trusted God. And they were quite different. One was the story of Goliath and how he went out there still trusting God. The second one was when this man's actually chasing him and it's almost like his hands tied behind his back, having spears being thrown at him, still trusting God. There is a time for us to be on the offensive like there is in the story of Goliath. There's other times when God doesn't want us to do anything else but to be dodging the spears and trusting in him. Both responses are right. We just need to know what's the right one at the right time. I think another aspect that uh, marked David's life, as you read through this whole story with uh, Saul, especially in the way that he looked after one of his sons after he had died, uh, is the whole area of forgiveness. One of the things that should mark Christians above everything else, besides our worship, besides our trust, is the level to which we can forgive. Christ taught us in his prayer to incorporate within our understanding of the way that we worship God is to say, God, we are happy to move into this deal. And the deal is, Father, forgive those that sin against me in the same way that I forgive those that sin against me. No, but you know what I'm trying to say? It's hard to jump in the middle of the Lord's Prayer when you're preaching. Anyway, forgive us this day our daily, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. That's the deal we're asking for. Forgive us the way we forgive. That's what I was after. Wow. Do you hear much about forgiveness in the media these days? No, you, you won't. It's not natural for that. Let me just turn over to a couple of passages I'd like to finish off. And The fourth one is that David was teachable. Do you know you need to learn a lot? I'm not just saying that because I'm a principal. And for those of you who have been through the school and out of school, listen, you still need to learn a lot. And I'd love to help you in some shape or form, but I'm pointing towards where you need to go. Psalm 25, make me to know thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in the truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. For thee I wait all the day long. Learning hasn't finished. I still need to be taught. And in that sense, in the uh, school of God, God can help me with the things that he needs to teach me. I'd like to go over to Psalm 39 for the uh, number five in this list. What else did um, David do? He guarded his heart. Psalm 39 verses 1 and 2. I said, I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. I will bridle my mouth so long as the wicked are in my presence. I will guard my ways. So be active about it. Be on guard. Psalm 51 well, we know that David sinned. 
that wasn't the end for him because in the midst of his sin he started to cry out. In Psalm 51 he knew what it was to be able to cry out to God and ask God to give him a clean heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. If we could do it on our own, there'd be no need for the cross. The cross just just wasn't for my entry into heaven. It's for my daily life. We need to constantly know that Jesus is taking care of the sin that I'm giving back to him, the things I'm doing wrong, and he's forgiving. It's our great hope. It's our only hope, the cross. And the last one I wanted to finish on was uh, Psalm 139. Again, a famous one that talks about where can we run to from God. tells us how wonderful he's created us. For we were formed in inward parts and he knew all about that. But listen to the way that Psalm 139 finishes. Another Psalm of David. With these words, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in a way everlasting. So many wonderful things that David understood about the world that God had made, about the journey that he'd been on, the amazing miracles that he'd seen. But he still wanted to do this. He still wanted to say, Search me, O God, and know my heart. God's into testing hearts. It's testing my heart. I trust that I can stay true. I won't have an end like Solomon. I don't want that. I don't want to find myself deviated. Or like King Uzziah. See, the issue is just not a sexual one. The issue is over pride in our hearts. That was Uzziah's problem. And sometimes we need to have the reminder of these people in the scriptures to make sure we don't go off track. Moses. In an outburst of anger and a reaction towards what God was asking, did what God told him not to do and missed out on the promised land after being such a marvellous leader for so many years. So those things are there to remind us and to encourage us. When it comes down to testing, I believe God doesn't let us to be tested beyond what we can bear. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. And he'll provide a way of escape. Escapes in their book, folks. You're not going to find it in the media. As Peter's been alluding to today, you might not find it from the counsel of your friends. You're going to find it as you contemplate what's wrong with society and you start to realise, whoa, it's down here. God, deal with my heart. May we be changed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for so many wonderful events that you've put there for our uh, understanding for our education. I pray for these people, Lord, that love you and want to grow in their knowledge of you. I pray that you'd help them understand how you see us, how you've created us, that even though we are wonderfully and fearfully made, that we still need to ask you to come and examine our hearts, to cleanse us, to change us, to make us the people that you'd have us to be, that would reflect your glory and bring honour to your name. 
So Lord, I pray that you'd help everyone here today to embrace your word, be saying amen to your word, and to be living it out. 